Hello, Bruce. Hi, welcome, welcome. We're now on the air. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to have a very interesting show today. We have invited back one of A Better World's favorite friends and colleagues, Bruce Lipton, cellular biologist with an international reputation for bridging the uh, fields of science and spirituality together and is a leading voice in the new biology. The cellular biologist by training, he taught at the University of Wisconsin Medical School as well as Stanford, Stanford University School of Medicine. He's been a guest speaker on uh, Better World Radio and TV and hundreds of others across the country and world and is a keynote speaker in numerous, numerous conferences actually across the world. Bruce Lipton has uh, written a book that is of such importance and that is called The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and Miracles. It's now in its 10th anniversary edition, and we are celebrating that today on A Better World, and we'll be speaking about the fundamentals of the book, the breakthroughs that Bruce Lipton has brought forward to the national and international scientific communities, and let me put it this way, the thinking communities and the feeling communities, people who are really interested in opening up the space and the inquiry into what are genes anyway? What role do they play in our lives? And Bruce has made some uh, wondrous and inc incredibly significant discoveries in this domain that will open things up, as I say in my newsletter this week, to incredible possibilities, putting us as in the driver's seat instead of the passenger seat. Bruce Lipton, welcome back to A Better World, my friend. Mitchell, thank you so much. I don't know if I can live up to all the things you just said, but uh, I'm so excited to be with you and with your wonderful audience. <laughs> I will <laughs> say this. You have, you've already lived up to them. so <laughs> We're cruising at this point. We're cruising. <laughs> no, well, thank uh, you truly for your extraordinary contributions to the fields of science, of medicine, and as I said, thinking, because uh, you were not afraid to go beyond what the electron uh, microscope was showing you to interpret freshly and impartially what you saw, and as a result, have had some very interesting epiphanies that I'd really like you to share with our audience today and kind of really want to open up the space, Bruce, for you to share with us those points of your discoveries through the years that you feel are most salient and most poignant for our audience to hear. How many hours? <laughs> well, two. Uh, Mitchell, uh, let, let, let's <laughs> at least with, one. Yeah. <laughs> let, let's start with the the first experiment uh, uh, that I was involved with back in 1967, uh, an experiment that completely, you know, just changed the whole course of my life and brought me on a different plane than my colleagues were, uh, and that was this. Let's go back. Uh, at the time, sure. I was involved with. Uh, teaching in a, in a, at the University of Wisconsin. I was teaching medical students, and we were teaching them the belief that genes control life. Uh, it was a belief called genetic determinism, which simply means mm -hmm. genes determine the character of your life, not just the physical characteristics, but behavior and emotion. 
And why that is very relevant is genes control these characteristics. Uh, then we must ask, well, uh, did you pick the genes you came with? And as far as we know, no. I said, well, if you don't like the traits that your genes are supposedly providing, can you change those genes? The answer is no. And then you start to realize something. Wait a minute. The genes control my life. I didn't pick them, and I can't change them. I'm a victim of my heredity. If there's cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease running in my family, I anticipate as a recipient of the genes in that family, I I'll, you know, expect those things in my own life. That's genetic determinism. Yes, your mother had cancer and your grandmother had cancer, and therefore you can expect that you shall have cancer as well. Uh, it's a belief we bought into. Well, mm-hmm. I was teaching teaching that. And I said, well, what was I actually te- Think about it for a second, Mitchell. What am I teaching when I tell people that? Uh, and I'm teaching medical doctors, then they're going to tell their patients. And I said, well, yeah, but what are they going to tell their patients? The answer is, you're a victim. You have no power over this. The <laughs> genes have power over you, and you have no power over the genes, and therefore you, you, you are powerless. Uh, and the moment somebody feels they're powerless and they're a victim, the first thing they, they do naturally is well, who's going to help me? Where am I going to get help from? Who's the rest yes. uh, And so, therefore, we give up power and responsibility because we can't do anything about it and then look for some rescuer, in this case the pharmaceutical industry, to come and give us the right chemicals so that we can adjust our lives because we can't. So and the doctor, and the doctor, of course. Yeah, well, you know, listen, I'm not uh, fully supporting of the medical profession, but I'm not saying I'm against the doctors. Why? I taught doctors. If the doctors are practicing, they're practicing because of the way they were taught. They're not practicing because they made it up on their own. So if you want to, you know, if I have a problem with, with the industry, it's not with the practitioners. It's with the academic end of it that says, oh, well, this is what we teach. And I go, yeah, but what if your teaching is wrong? And exactly. Which it is. <laughs> so, All I'm saying uh, is that that same, that same idea of victimhood puts the pharmaceutical company and the medical profession into the position of the driver's seat instead of the patient, him or herself. And absolutely. what we now, right? And so we also know, interestingly enough, Bruce, and I do hold doctors wholly responsible for this communication that once uh, a patient feels that they are a victim or they are presented with statistics as to what the doctor thinks about their prognosis, the doubt, pessimism, and the upset that they feel is accompanied by an entire cascade of biochemicals and biohormones into their bloodstream, which actually causes more stress and more strife and more upset into their actual biology. Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, most everybody out there is familiar with something called the placebo effect, and the placebo effect yes. is, uh, oh, listen, I'm going to give you this pill, and this is the latest medical technology, and when you take this pill, your issues will all be cleared up. They take the pill, they get well, and then later find out the pill was a sugar pill. I said, well, <laughs> we all know right. that, and I, what was the healing? Well, obviously the healing didn't come from a sugar pill, but came from the belief in the sugar pill. Yes. And so everybody yes. goes, yeah, yes, positive belief about healing and placebo, and I go, yeah, that's true. But what they don't want to acknowledge or they haven't been told about is, what about negative thinking? Because placebo effect is the experience of positive thinking. I have a positive thought that this pill is going to heal me, and I get healed, and the pill didn't do it, so a positive thought did it. And I said, what about yes. negative thinking? Well, nobody talks about that. And I go, well, there's your problem. <laughs> and the problem is this. Exactly. Negative thinking is equally powerful in creating an outcome, 
but it works in the opposite direction. So a positive mm-hmm. thought can heal you, and this is true. A negative thought can kill you. And so yeah. why I say is that relevant? Because as you just brought up, if the doctor unknowingly uh, gives a diagnosis because it's based on what other people have said or whatever has gone on in the literature and all that, and they give a negative belief, well, I'm sorry, your odds are not good, this won't work very well, you know, you're going to have these problems, these are thoughts. And I go, well, guess what? When the patient believes in that doctor, which almost all do, then the negative diagnosis actually will materialize whether it would have or not uh it was it would materialize because you believe it to materialize it you know it's like the reverse placebo uh oh my god i'm going to get the cancer and die because that's what they said i was going to do uh and i go yes and why is this important because it's called the nocebo effect and it says that negative thinking is equally powerful but works in the opposite direction and then go back to what you just said a diagnosis is generally not a very positive outcome for most people and i say will they naturally have experienced this and i say maybe not at all but they will now because once the thought is put into their head uh from a professional then the professional thought is what takes over their biology not their own wishes and their own desires they give up their power to buy Mm -hmm. the belief of the professional well, this is one of your great contributions, really, is understanding, and I would like you to elaborate on it, is that, that effect of the belief system on the life of the cell. And uh, this is really, at the time you came up with this, some years back, Bruce, you were one of the most articulate voices about this. Now, let's give credit to the body of psychosomatic medicine. You know, a lot of it, it it doesn't really originate with Freud, but he, in the more modern times, uh, can reasonably lay claim to a lot of it in the work of Franz Alexander as well, um, of understanding the role of the mind, thought, and emotion on the physical body. But you articulated it in a way with, with real biology and biochemistry like no one else has actually done. So could you, I mean, you could go back to Hippocrates and it was understood <laughs> that the role of the mind was quintessential in the, in the role of health. But well, you know, let's, let's not go, go back, back to, that far. Let's go back 500 well, B.C. and the Buddha, okay. the Buddha said, <laughs> there you go. What, what you think you become. And it's interesting because now 2,500 years later, the absolute leading-edge science says the Buddha was exactly right. And and it's exactly right because there's scientific reasoning behind it. And I thought, I had the opportunity of seeing it back uh, in 1967, and I was cloning stem cells. And stem cells are the equivalent of embryonic cells in your body. And you have to have stem cells because every day you lose hundreds of billions of your cells normally. They just die of aging. Hundreds of billions. That's a, a number that's <laughs> extremely yeah. large number. And, Extraordinary. Uh, if you, uh, yeah, and if you didn't have stem cells, uh, you would die after a certain number of days. If you keep losing hundred billion cells every day, it's a downhill run from there. But stem cells are in our body. These are like embryonic cells, and they replace the dying cells every day. So I'm growing stem cells, but I'm not growing uh, a whole bunch of them. I actually put one stem cell in a culture all by itself, and then it divides every 10 hours. So first there's one, and then there's two, and then there's four, eight. It keeps doubling. After a week, I have 50,000 cells in the Petri dish, 50,000 of these Uh embryonic-like cells. Most important point, they're all genetically identical because they came from the same parent. So they all have 50,000 genetically identical cells. 
But what blew my mind and changed my whole life was this simple experiment. Cells grow in culture medium. I say, well, what's culture medium? Well, it's a synthetic environment that I create. I say, in your body, cells uh, live in fluid. Cells are like a fish. They live in an aquarium. So that's why when mm-hmm. you cut yourself open, all the liquids run out because it's cutting the aquarium open. I say, well, what are the fluids that are in the body? Well, it's derived from the blood. So I say, oh, well, if I want to grow like chicken cells, then when I put a cell in a culture, I have to give it the environment it has close to uh, it experienced in the chicken. So I go to the chicken, look at the blood, figure out the composition, and then make synthetic culture medium based on the composition of chicken blood. When I grow human cells, I look in the human body, look at the blood, look at the composition, and try to make culture medium based on human blood. So culture medium is a synthetic version of blood. So I have my cells in my culture dish, but here's what I do. 50,000 genetically identical cells, I split them up into three different Petri dishes. And in each dish, I, I make a culture medium, but I change the chemistry slightly so that mm-hmm. there are three different culture dishes in regard to the, the chemistry of the environment, but they all have genetically identical cells. In one dish, the cells form muscle. In the second dish, the cells form bone. In the third dish with a different environment, the cells form fat cells. And I'm looking at it and going, well, what controls the fate of the cells? And the first thing is this. They were all genetically the same. So I can't say the genes caused it to become muscle and this, and the gene caused it to become bone and that. I said, it was the environment that caused it. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait a minute. I'm teaching, teaching in the medical classroom. Genes control life. They come in my own laboratory and find out genes didn't control life. It was the chemistry of the environment. Well, that's the equivalent of blood. And I go, well, okay. Well, this is a culture environment. What the heck does it have to do with a real human? And I go, first thing is this. Uh, and Mitch, I love it when we talk together because our, our discussions go wide and far. But, uh, you let, bet. Let's just talk I know. About I do too. <laughs> well, <laughs> when you look at yourself in the mirror and you see yourself looking back, I see Bruce. I go, yeah, Bruce is a single human living organism. And Mitch looks in the mirror, sees Mitch, single living organism. I go, well, wait, mistake. A human body is actually <laughs> comprised of about... 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity. Those are the individual units of life. When I say the word Bruce, that's a name for a community of 50 trillion cells. So I'm not a single entity. And I go, well, what does that mean? I go, here's the jokey part. And the jokey part is, well, the human body is the equivalent of a skin-covered Petri dish, inside of which I have 50 trillion cells and culture medium called blood. And I go, doesn't make a difference to the cell if it's in the plastic dish or in the skin covered dish in regard to what controls it. I say, no, in either case, it's controlled by the culture medium, and in the body, it's called blood. So I say, oh, then the chemistry of your blood is controlling the genetics and the behavior of your cells. I go, absolutely, just the same as it did in the plastic dish. And then I go, wait a minute, who's the chemist? What controls the composition of my culture medium blood? And I go, the brain. The brain is the one that releases the chemical organizers, the hormones, the, the regulatory elements that control our lives. And I go, oh, mm-hmm. and then we come down to the last but the more important aspect. Well, what chemicals should the brain release into the blood? I go, ah, it's based on the picture in our mind. Ah. So I give you an example. I give you an example. I say, 
you're sitting there, Mitchell, you open up your eyes, and all of a sudden you see someone you love in front of you. The mind says, oh, here's this person I love. Well, love releases some wonderful chemicals into the blood. Yes. Dopamine, pleasure. Yeah, when you're in love, you feel in pleasure. And I say, yeah, oxytocin, bonding. I want to mm. bond with that one. One of my favorites, Bruce. <laughs> I, isn't it a snuggly one? That's a good one. And then I say, uh, vasopressin is released in love, and that makes you attractive, more attractive, so your partner wants to be with you. And, and another one, growth hormone. So I say, my God, oh. the chemical cocktail released by your brain in love is chemistry that enhances the growth of your life. That's why they say, well, oh, look, they must be in love. See how they glow? You know, look yes. at them. They're so healthy. And I go, yeah. And that's, that's a vasopressin. That's a present the attractive one. That, that's really important. That keeps your friend around. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, 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 the reality is what? The culture medium from a brain experiencing love in its mind is a culture medium that enhances the growth of the individual. And I go, wait a minute. Mm. Same person opens their eyes, but instead of seeing something they love, they see something that scares them. I go, well, the chemistry that was released in love is not going to be released when there's fear. Yes. When there's fear, stress hormones and inflammatory agents are released into the blood. Adrenaline. Adrenaline. Stress. Run. (coughs) Get ready. So the issue issue becomes very important. The culture medium in fear has different chemistry than the culture medium in love. The Mm. chemistry in the blood controls the fate of the cells. The chemistry of fear shuts down the growth of the system and shuts down the immune system. Not to punish you. It's shutting it down because in fear, you're getting ready for what we – you remember in high school, adrenal system, exactly. fight or flight. Fight or flight? Like, yeah. Yeah. So if I'm in fear, I've got to get ready for fight or flight. Well, I'm going to use my arms and legs to run away or fight. And I say, oh, well, then sure. I want to put all the energy available. If I'm being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, I don't want to par- partial out my energy and, oh, yeah, fix this uh, wound over here and work on this bacterial infection over here and do this over right. here. Right, let's like, have a bite to eat. Yeah, let, let's put all that energy <laughs> into running away, which means send all the blood to the arms right. and legs because that's where the energy is. It must is. be go, concentrated, yes. Right, so the, the first effort is to get all the energy for running away. That means shut off anything that uses energy that's not going to protect your life. Well, that's growth. <laughs> that's the immune yes. system. And I say, ah, oh, you know what? 90% of today's doctor visits, it's estimated to be up to 90% of today's doctor visits, are not due to genetics or any issues like that. They're due to stress. And the reason why mm-hmm. is stress shuts down the growth and maintenance of the body and shuts down the immune system. The net consequence, of course, if you stay in stress, is you're going to get sick. And so, yes, stress causes illness because the chemistry of the blood shuts down the growth. So how does the mind work? It, this is so beautiful because it's so simple. Uh, when when yeah. we were young, we probably uh, you know played with something called paint by numbers where you get like a picture with outlines and there are numbers mm-hmm. in the outlines and there's a paint kit and the numbers for the colors are on there and you take the number from that paint. and Anyone paint. becomes an artist, in uh, fact. Picasso in 10 minutes, baby. And uh, the the issue about that is very simple. Is so uh, the the numbers in the picture relate to the paint uh, tints uh, that when you assemble them you become that Picasso. And I go, let's simplify how life works, and it works like this: it's paint by numbers in reverse. Meaning, first you put the image in your mind of something, and the brain 
takes that image and converts it not into paint numbers, but into neurochemicals, which are like paint in the body. They adjust yes. your body to match the picture. You have a picture of something to be afraid of, your body is in fear. You have a picture in your mind of love, your body is in health and growth. So all of a sudden I said, it's the picture in your mind that is translated into the chemistry of the culture medium, the mind-body connection. And, yes. and why is that relevant? Well, if the picture in your mind is negative, then your body, by definition, is going to get sick. And if the picture in your mind is positive, then your body will get well because it's like being in love, you're healthy, and being in fear, you're sick. So all of a sudden it says, we weren't controlled by the genes. The whole belief that genes control us, Mitchell, well, that, that, that is a, an argument that we bought into is totally false. That is the most exciting thing. It's false. Everyone takes a, a gene turned on and a gene turned off and a gene <laughs> controlled. And the fact is, that is biologically totally incorrect for a simple reason. A gene is a blueprint. I say, what, what, what does that mean? I say, well, you go into an architect's office, and she's working on a blueprint, and you ask the architect, is your blueprint on or off? And she looks at you like, what, are you crazy? It's a blueprint. I go, precisely. The genes yes. don't turn on and off. The genes are blueprints. It's the mind that is the contractor that will build the body. And I say, well, mm, what body would it beautiful. build? And I say, well, what's the image in the mind? It will build that image, whatever it is, a positive image, a negative image. function of the mind is just to take the image and manifest the body that matches that. And so all of a sudden I say, oh, my God, the genes didn't control me at all. I go, no, it was your thoughts that control you. Uh, changing your thoughts and your beliefs. That's how people have like a spontaneous remission. They're dying of exactly. cancer. Everybody says they're going to die, and then what? They change their belief system profoundly. Uh, and what you happens? know, yeah. you're reminding me, Bruce. I, I'm sorry, Let me, if I may just interject this. No, please uh, do that. <clears throat> you're reminding me of the work of, uh, of uh, God, I just had their name, Stephanie Simonton. Back in the 70s, I came across this work at an American Psychiatric Association conference that I attended as a young and budding holistic psychotherapist in 1979. And I attended this conference, and at first I thought it was going to be a bit stodgy, and in general it was. However, there were the Simontons, a married couple, that were using, not paint by numbers, but it may as well have been, they were using drawing as a means of imagining a cancer being overcome in a patient's, in a person's body. And through this art therapy, if you will, by seeing the image, just as you're saying, and then watching it disintegrate through a series of drugs, these people noted a remarkable and statistically significant change in their health and freeing themselves from cancer. So that is just some work that is real world that has been going on really since then, probably since the 60s, but certainly the 70s, that has been not that well-known, not as well-known as it should be. But your work, again, is helping to provide a scientific, biological understanding of the phenomenon. So you're probably that, aware of the That's precisely it. Mitchell, that's precisely yeah. And that's how simple it is. And, the, and then it gets complicated at some point, uh, not because yeah. the biology is complicated. Biology is simple. What's complicated, I think, is our understanding of the mind. And I yes. use that word, the mind, 
because we have different interpretations of what that really means. A lot of people have a, oh, I have a mind. And I go, well, first of all, your mind is comprised of at least two different elements that have uh, different functions and learn in different ways. And this becomes the conflict. Because I say my mind, I say, well, which part of your mind? I mean, the conscious mind or the subconscious mind? I go, well, yes. what's the difference? And here's what the difference is. Because Everything. without knowing, what's that? Yeah. Well, no, I said everything's the difference. the difference. Well, it is, because if you don't know what the yeah. difference is, then you're going to confuse the whole... This is like the instruction That's book. Right. The instruction That's book right. is there are two minds. The conscious mind, the latest evolution of the brain, is right behind your forehead. It's a part of the brain called prefrontal cortex. That's where you as an individual reside. You as a spirit, you as a source, you as an identity. Mm-hmm. is this prefrontal cortex, the latest evolution of the brain. The conscious mind is about 10%. The remaining portion of the brain, 90%, is subconscious mind. I say, okay, what is the difference? And this, if people get this, they will have control over their lives. If they don't get this, they're completely lost. <laughs> so mm-hmm. here's what it is. Mm-hmm. The conscious yeah. mind, by its definition, is creative. Uh, and that's the unique part that makes humans so different than other animals. Other animals are reactive to the world around them. Stimulus, response, stimulus, response. Humans, mm-hmm. between the stimulus and the response, have an opportunity to be creative. So I have a stimulus, but I don't have to do the same response. I can create something. So that gives us a freedom that other animals don't have, creativity. So if I ask you, uh, hey, Mitchell, tell me what you really want from your life. By definition, that's a creative uh, answer because you're looking question for and answer yes yeah this is what i want but it's not here but it's in the future so i say oh well then the answer to the question of what do you want from your life by definition is a conscious mind solution because it's creative and i say oh yes, yes i want this i want that i desire this you know and i say oh so simple line the conscious mind is creative and it has your wishes and your desires your aspirations for life i go relevance all those things that you really want, that you really are looking for, are, are beliefs and desires and wishes stemming from conscious mind's creativity. I go, okay, well, what's the other mind? Oh, subconscious mind. I say, is there anybody in there? Well, first of all, no. <laughs> this becomes a problem, especially when we keep trying to talk to our subconscious mind, asking it to change. It's like, well, there's nobody in there, so you're wasting a lot of time talking to it. Right. Uh, but here's what the conscious mind is. Uh, the conscious mind is a database of programs. They're learned experiential programs. And, and the, a lot of people think conscious mind, uh, subconscious mind is evil. I go, no, subconscious mind's not evil. It's like a CD player or an old-fashioned tape player. It's a machine that records behavior, and when you push the button, it plays the behavior, so you never have to learn it again. So is the subconscious mind evil? I go, no, it, it's no more evil than a CD player. The program right. might be evil, but the player is not. So I say, <laughs> yes, let's don't blame the, the subconscious. So <clears throat> I say, uh, subconscious program, uh, habits uh, that we have learned. Uh, you learned how to walk when you're an infant. Thank God you have a subconscious mind because you, when you get up every day, you don't have to learn how to walk. <laughs> you, you got exactly. it. Exactly. It's, it's what allows us to create second nature, like walking or driving or bicycling or forms of thinking or remembering numbers, what have you. Yeah, and, and so it's a, an, an, an advantage to have a subconscious mind because you don't yes, have to relearn is. things, okay? Exactly. But the problem is if you mislearn something, you also have that for the rest of your ah. life until you decide to change it. Voila, so I go, that's well, the rub right there, Bruce, exactly. Yeah, and, and I said, well, wait a second. 
where did all the information come from in your subconscious mind? Well, I say, well, some of it you learn from experiential. Just like I said, when you're an infant, you learned how to walk. It was a learning experience, and the subconscious mind learned, and now you can do it without thinking about it. But here's the issue of where did it all go wrong? Well, where it all goes wrong is this. In order for you to use your conscious mind, you have to have data to be conscious of. Uh, analogy time. I go to the Apple store, buy a brand-new iPod, take it out of the box, push play, nothing happens. I'm really frustrated. Some little five-year-old kid next to me goes, well, what are you upset about? You didn't download any music. You can't play anything. <laughs> oh. oh, see, so I say, oh, wait a minute. The conscious mind and the subconscious mind work together. The conscious mind is like the creative part of the iPod, the touchscreen, where you can create a playlist and adjust the, the volume and rewind, mm-hmm. fast forward, all that. You can control it. The subconscious mind is like the hard drive with all the programs in it. If there are no programs in the subconscious mind, like an iPod, consciousness can't play anything. There's nothing there. So nature created the first seven years of a child's life where the brain is operating in a state of hypnosis. Uh, It's called theta. It's also associated with imagination. That's why uh, children under seven mix the imaginary world and the real world together. The mother says, give me the broom. The kid says, it's a horse. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, uh, (laughs) But I go, okay, wait, so what else is theta? Hypnosis. It's closer to a dream state. It is. That's a kid's kid's life is like a real dream state, living dream. You know, it's playing the whole time. Exactly. And there's a huge amount of power in that as well. Huge. Well, yeah, but it depends on what you're downloading in the hypnosis stage. I say, why do you need the that's hypnosis? Right. I said, that's like downloading the programs into the iPod. I can't use the conscious part of the iPod unless I have the download. So seven yeah. years of download. I say, oh, you're downloading behavior. I say, yeah. I say, what behavior? Well, how to behave. <laughs> how to, how to mm. be a member of a family. How to be a member of a community and a culture. There are rules, you know. How many thousands of rules are there to be a functional member of a family and a community? I say, Oh, yes. is there a textbook that you give an infant here? Your one-year-old infant, read this textbook. Uh, there's, you know, 10,000 rules in there on how to be a member of this. Obviously, that wouldn't work. So nature avoids that by having the child's brain be in hypnosis. How does it learn to program? The same way a video camera downloads and observes somebody's behavior. A child's brain is like a video camera recording everyone's behavior around them and learning Mm -hmm. how to respond by watching their behavior. So the fundamental programs in our subconscious mind did not come from us. They came from other people, and we downloaded it in a state of hypnosis. There's a problem with that, meaning, well, the programs you're downloading, are they good for you or bad for you? Well, you didn't have a conscious mind to review it, so guess what? You downloaded anything. Yes. Good and bad. Right. And psychologists will tell us 70% of the programs that we downloaded are negative, disempowering, self-sabotaging, limiting behaviors. And I go, wow. Very true. But then you say, okay, I'll just run my life with my conscious mind. <laughs> I don't need to use the subconscious yes. programs. Now that i got ideas, I'll just run it with my conscious mind. And I go, now here is the problem. And this I is don't it. This think is that's it. going to work. <laughs> it won't work for this reason because... The conscious mind is capable of thinking. So I asked you, Mitchell, I say, hey, tell me what you're doing Wednesday at 2 o'clock. If you actually answer that question, really, well, you have to realize to answer that question, you had to go in your head. You had to go like in that Rolodex in your head and think, of, what am I doing Wednesday, Wednesday, 2 o'clock? I go, why? Mm-hmm. What's relevant at that moment? I'm going to tell you right now. 
your conscious mind is thinking. It's not paying attention to what's going on around you. It's thinking. Yes. And I say, well, does that mean just because you have a thought, everything you're doing stops? You're walking down the street, you have a thought, you stop in your track, complete the thought and say, okay, let's continue walking. I go, no. You have a thought, you continue walking. You're driving the car, and you have a thought. You're right. You can driving. think and walk at the same time. You can shoot uh, bombs. Yeah, you know, talk, talk at the same time. George Bush Jr. could do that. (laughs) Then anyone could, right? (laughs) The simple reality is this. This is a fact. It's a fact. Yes. Science has recognized that we are in thought 95% of the day. Well, if you're in thought 95% of the day, then by definition, your conscious mind is not paying attention to what's going on 95% of the day. Around you, environmentally. Yes. You're still alive. You're still doing everything. I said, well, who's running the show? I go, oh. The default, the moment you're thinking and you stop paying attention, the subconscious by default takes over. Well, I say, well, the subconscious knows how to speak. The subconscious knows how to walk. The subconscious knows how to drive the car. It knows your job because those are things you repeated and learned. I say, so 95% of the conscious mind with wishes and desires is engaged in thinking, and therefore your life 95% of the day is run by the subconscious programs. Oh, yeah, but they came from other people, basically those behaviors. So 95% of the day, your behavior is not in any way supporting your wishes and your desires. They're just playing back what other people did. And, and I say, why is it relevant? You're not living your life, man. <laughs> you're, you're living somebody's program. And it's interesting. You say, oh, is this new science? And I go, well, the science part might be new, but the understanding is since 1600, the Jesuits – uh, uh, St. Francis Xavier said, give me a child until it's seven, and I will show you the man. I said, what were they saying? Think about what they were saying. They were saying, oh, if I have the opportunity to teach a child for seven years, it will become whatever I teach it. I go, precisely, exactly. They knew it. They knew that whatever the programs that went in in the first seven years in that record state, they'll be the predominant behavior. I go, oh, yes, exactly. They knew we were programmable. <laughs> I go, yeah. And I say, if you think they knew it and were doing it, today the people that are running the so-called world, they know it better than anybody else, and they can program you much better than the Jesuits were able to program us. So are we running our lives or are we running a program? The answer is the movie The Matrix is not a science fiction movie. It's a documentary. All of us have been programmed, and that Indeed. the programs we get, most of them are negative and disempowering, and they run 95% of the time, and therefore uh, our lives are not what we want. We wake up in the morning with, oh, I want to be successful, I want to be healthy, I want to have a great romance, I want to have a good job. I go, these are great conscious wishes and desires. Then you go off to work, and you come home at the end of the day, tail between your legs, going, well, uh, didn't happen today. <laughs> it could that didn't go tomorrow. so well. Right. Uh, 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 and Let's, then it's very disappointing because yeah. you see yourself in a struggle trying to get to where you want to go and not getting there. And, and here is, again, uh, uh, retelling you the problem, and here's where the problem is. You are running your life 95% of the time with the programs. So I go, yeah, but when I'm running my life, why am I running it with these subconscious programs? The answer is conscious mind's busy. I go, that means that when I'm playing my subconscious programs, my subconscious mind's not seeing it. I go, yeah, that is where the problem comes from. Because your mm-hmm. conscious mind's engaged in thinking, whatever's playing while the default's running, you're not aware of it. 
I, I, Mitchell, I give this in my lecture, and most people are familiar with it, so I'd like to use it as an example. I go, go back to your when you were younger, you probably had a friend you were very close to, and you knew your friend's behavior very, very, very well. And you happen to know your friend's parent. And one day, you start to see oh, that your yeah. friend has some of the same behaviors as their parent. You get very excited. You know, you want to you want to tell your friend, "Hey, you know, Bill's just like your dad." Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as you tell Bill he's just like his dad, he's the one that goes ballistic and says, "How the hell can you compare me to my dad?" And How could everyone you do laughs. It? They all oh. laugh because they're familiar with it. And I go, "This is a profound story. Why?" Everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. Explain that. And I go, yeah, I can explain it simply. 95% of the day, Bill's conscious mind, who is Bill, is thinking, therefore not running the show. He defaults to the subconscious, but he's the one that doesn't see it because the conscious mind's busy. And therefore, the playing of the behavior while his conscious mind's busy is invisible. And so when somebody says, hey, you're just like your dad, he's like, what are you talking about? I'm not like my dad, but the reality was 95% of the day he was, but Bill didn't see it. And then I go, okay, profound point number two, and I want all my listeners to hold on for a second because here it is, profound point number two. We are all Bill. Every one of us is playing programs 95% of the day. The programs are based on the experiences that we learned in the first seven years. These experiences were behaviors acquired from other people. So their behaviors are playing, but we don't see it because the conscious mind's busy. And I say, even though that happens, sometimes we do see it. Sometimes we go, oh, my God, it was just like my dad. Oh, my God, it was just like my mom. It's almost sure. an embarrassing moment. Uh, and yes. realize, yeah, well, that's infrequent when you catch it. But it's like that almost right. all day long. And, yes, and I go, exactly. Why? No, this is a, it's such a critical point to understanding because when we see that, when we have that level of insight, Bruce, we actually become a modicum freer from that behavior, and we can, at least we're in the position of saying, yay, I like that behavior, that's a good part of my father or my mother, or, oh my God, that's a part that I never liked in them, and therefore I wouldn't, and others wouldn't like it in me, and I'm going to root it out, you know? Well, at least so you see it, at least it's good. position for choice. Yeah, if you see it, Correct. that's really good, but as I said, most of the time we don't see it. Uh, most and, of the time becomes, we will. Yeah. yeah. So basically, the, the story of the Matrix is true. We have been programmed for yes. seven years. But the programming, and psychologists, as I mentioned, say almost all of that programming is negative and disempowering. And then I Correct. say, yeah, but unfortunately, that program runs 95% of the time. Uh, uh, and then we really yes. and we don't see it. Uh, and, and therefore, so, look at the world that we have. Look at the world that we have today. It's, a, it's largely, I mean, if you said, um, who, who says they want to grow up and be a murderer or part of a group that's going to behead people? You know, I don't think anybody would say yes, and every Billy's hand goes up. I don't think so. I think no. people say, I want to live a good life, and I want to make my friends and my, my family happy and proud of me and all of that. But then the subconscious kicks in. I mean, I'm being very simplistic about it right now, but, but, that's but pretty if you basic, look at the world, this is a result. That that's very basically exactly what's happening right now, and, yes. and it's very interesting because as we said, well, this is the matrix. We have been programmed. Yes. And, and then I say, well, here's an interesting thing. I say, in the movie The Matrix, they they had an option to take either of two pills, a blue pill or a red pill. Yes. 
And they yeah. say, well, what if you take the blue pill? Oh, well, when you wake up, you're back in the same program, and life is exactly the way it's always been. And I say, yeah, but what if you take a red pill? And they say, ah, you get out of the program. But they never really go into, so what's sure. it like to be out of the program? And now yeah. I love it because my, my more recent book, The Honeymoon Effect, uh, goes into that and says, yes. what we now know is that when you fall in love like the, you know, the kind of love that head over heels love, uh, uh, the kind of love, just think about it this way, your life is struggle, 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 struggle. You meet this one person, and 24 hours later, it's like, oh, my God, it's the most beautiful. Life is so great. I love being alive. This is heaven <laughs> on earth. I got this great love. Everything's yep. great, great, great. And I go, wait a minute. Up to 24 hours ago, life was a pain in the ass struggle. Now it's heaven. <laughs> what the heck happened? How did it change so radically? (laughs) And it's beautiful because science has found the answer. And the answer is, when you fall in love like that, it's the equivalent of taking the red pill. Meaning that because most of our lives, every average person, 95% of the life uh, is coming from the subconscious because we are thought 95% of the time. It turns out when we fall in love like that, we stay mindful, not knowing we're doing it, but meaning we we don't go into a lot of thought. I go, why not? Because, well, everything you wanted is in front of your face. Why would you go and travel in your mind when everything you wanted was right there? So we stay mindful, meaning yes. every decision that we're making when we're being mindful is not coming from the program, but it's coming from conscious wishes and desires. And I tell, oh, then what happens when two people are not playing programs but playing wishes and desires? I go, they manifest wishes and desires. They manifest heaven on earth. And I say, how'd they do that? Because they're not playing the program. So I say, oh, that's called the honeymoon. And then people say, yeah, but the honeymoon doesn't last. And I go, and the reason is simple. Because no matter how much you want to stay mindful, there's a period where you still have to go, well, I still got a job. (laughs) I still got to pay the rent. I got to fix the car. I got chores. I go, why is that relevant? Because as long as you stay mindful, the honeymoon is between you and your partner is both a creative state of creating wishes and desires, manifesting heaven on earth. But the moment you start thinking, then realize this, your conscious mind gets engaged in thought. So all of a sudden, your behavior is not coming from your wishes and desires. It's coming from the stored programs in your subconscious. You defaulted to subconscious. I go, holy crap, those are the behaviors I got from my mother and father. Look at their relationship. It's like, exactly. guess what? No wonder I'm sabotaging this beautiful relationship. Yeah, but you didn't see it. And that's where the arguments come from. You get blindsided. Yeah, I mean. You get blindsided. My Margaret, my beautiful partner, comes up. We're in a honeymoon state, you know, and, and and she asked me some loving question. But at this one moment, I'm thinking about something I have to do in my chores or something. And yes. she asked me a loving question, and I turn around and go, blah, blah, blah. And she looks at me, and I love it because it's a universal phrase. She says, who are you? Where would that oh, come from? Oh, God, yes. And then right. you have to, and, you, and here's Bruce, is that ends. you? <laughs> right. Yeah, but here's what the honeymoon ends. you got to remember, then I'm like Bill. I just played my yeah. father's behavior, but I'm the one that didn't see it. So That's I'm right. thinking I'm still me, happy, lucky, loving Bruce. She says, who are you? And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Because I didn't exactly. see what I just said because that was automatic behavior and subconscious. And, and all of a sudden it's like now there's a disconnect because she says, you're not being you. And I'm going, what do you mean? I've always been me. This is who I always am because I'm the one that didn't see what I just said. And that breakdown in communication is the breakdown of the honeymoon at that point. Exactly. Because and that's the breakdown of our uh, ability to manifest 
our conscious desires and wishes at that moment. Bruce, we have to let everyone know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and other times such as now. And we're speaking with Dr. Bruce Lipton, cellular biologist, author of the best-selling book, The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and Miracles. Now in its 10th anniversary edition, you can go to our website, abetterworld.tv, and by the way there, sign up for our free newsletter as well, announcing our weekly shows on radio and TV. Every Monday night we're on here in Manhattan at 7 p.m. And you can go to www. BruceLipton.com for more information and to see what he's up to as he travels the world in his honeymoon, making a profound difference in the world and in people's understanding. Bruce, it's such a pleasure to have you on A Better World. It's just, it's a honeymoon. Hey, Mitchell, uh, I just want the audience to know that uh, Mitchell and I met, what was it, 1995 now or something like that? That was 95 uh, or 94, one of those, yeah. Yeah, something about 10 years even before the book came out. And it was wonderful because uh, when we had our first discussions, Mitchell, you were just like, oh, wow, this is really interesting and significant. You put me on the air. And so we were together 10 years even before the book came out. And I'm so happy and proud to announce now 10 years after the book comes out, A, we're still great friends. And I so appreciate you, Mitchell, because um, since thought and knowledge is really where the power comes from, uh, your program for 20 years – has been uh, bringing new thought to the public. Uh, And to me, this is where evolution comes from. And your audience, I'm very honored to have your audience because your audience are the people that are thinking outside of the box. And and it's really critical at this time because the inside the box thinking is creating uh, the world situation, which is not sustainable, and and we're going extinct. Uh, And as Einstein uh, said, you cannot solve the problems with the thinking that created the problems. Consequently, the problems we face today will not be solved by continuing doing more of the same, but by seeking uh, new knowledge and new way of life. And so I want to, at this moment, as doing all this, is to thank you, Mitchell, for 20 years of offering Mm. the public self-empowering knowledge, knowledge that can help us evolve. And therefore, I'm honored to be with you, and I'm very honored to be with your audience. Thank you so much, my dear friend, Bruce Lipton. I so appreciate your words. It's uh, always a gift and brilliant to have you on. And you know how I feel about your work. I mean, way back in the early 90s when I first heard what were really breakthrough thinking um, and still are breakthrough thoughts and really change people's lives because it changes them from being victim, as you put it so well at the beginning, to becoming masterful and have leverage over one's life. I was saying, as were many of my friends, listen, Bruce Lipton should be nominated for a Nobel Prize for medicine or for thinking. Please. (laughs) (laughs) Come on now. It's pretty obvious. No, I really feel that way. the The greatest prize for me is this. I'm a student of this as much as anybody else could be a student of this. My point was, look, I was teaching yes. in the conventional allopathic medical community for years. Uh, but true. it was ultimately the cells 
that revealed to me a way of life that I said, oh, my God, everything I was teaching really was not really true and accurate. And that if I – it was funny because, Mitchell, when I first started talking about this in public, uh, of course it was not even in the public's consciousness anything I was talking about. So trying to get no. people to show up, you know, I'd pull them into a room. Come on, i got, I got to tell you this. <laughs> i got something to under- tell you. <laughs> if, I, yeah. if you understand what I'm talking about, you can create this most fabulous life. And they looked at me, and they, you know, and they'd, I'd start my lecture, and then they'd cock their heads and look at me and go, you know, Lipton, you, you know, your life doesn't look that good for a guy who says you know this stuff. And that's oh. the part that really took me to the, the next level of awareness because I realized, wait a minute, I'm very conscious of all this, but it has not affected my life. And that's when the jump started to realize my consciousness, creative mind, which is the one that learned and understood this, uh, was very smart, but uh, didn't realize at that time, yeah, but my life isn't coming from the conscious mind, it's coming from the subconscious mind, and therefore, no matter how smart my conscious mind got, I was still playing 95% of the day the old sabotaging programs. So how did you go about how did you go about that? This is an incredibly important point you're raising here because there's the, you know, the intellectual and the academic and even creative thinking, uh, new paradigm thinking even. And then there is, as we were saying here, trumpeting the subconscious, which can sabotage and short circuit all of our intellectual and academic, let's say, brilliance. So how doing do it you without go, you knowing it, without you seeing without it. Without you knowing it, exactly. It's part. subterfuge. So how yes. did you personally, Bruce, go about the transformation of integrating your understanding of the way things work genetically, epigenetically, um, into your own personal life? Well, the first wake-up call around that time where I started to realize, well, how come my life is not matching my conscious awareness, was I started to recognize that uh, subconscious beliefs were, were really running a system and more powerful. I said, well, what are the subconscious beliefs? And I said, well, the first time I started to recognize it actually was uh, while I was contemplating all this in my head, I remember driving my car, coming to a stoplight, and at, while I was at the stoplight, it, my mind didn't shut off. It was just, you know, it was a litany of phrases and ideas were passing through my mind. And for a moment I said, wait, looking at, at my thoughts as a third party, looking at it and going, wait, these thoughts that you have, oh, this won't happen. I won't get there on time. This probably won't work. I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, all wow. the thoughts I'm sending out are these, these things that will interfere. And I realized, but, but these are thoughts that are, are going to manifest. So, I had to start at that point and say, wait, when I catch myself in a negative thought, I have to stop that right there and just say, wait, I don't mean that. I want the positive yes. side. So it was, and, and by uh, every time you catch yourself and start to you know, fix where you were catching yourself, uh, you're making a new habit, if you think about it, because every time the thought comes up, you say, I don't want this thought, and you go somewhere else. The brain learns from habit. So at some point, if you keep repeating it, then that thought that was misdirecting you, even before it manifests, it will start to come up, and then the mind will say, no, when you ever have that thought, we always cancel it, so the mind cancels it. And guess what? Yes. You start eliminating it. And we start living these programs, and I said, what are the programs? Well, for most people, this is difficult for a simple reason. The program started in the last trimester of pregnancy. Your personality apparently was nearly 50% uh, developed before you were even born based on the chemistry. Yes of the blood uh, coming from your mother's brain, which is responding to her world. Uh, So your behavior was really being affected then, but all the way through first seven years. So I say, oh, okay, what program did you get when you were one year old? You go, I have no idea what the program was.
was. I was one year old. I don't know anything. Sure. I go, ah. Oh. Sure. I say, so you mean I have to go to a psychiatrist or a psychoanalysis system to understand or my program? Hypnotism. I go, yeah. let me save you a lot of time <laughs> and a lot of yeah. pain in the ass for this reason. 95% of our life comes from the subconscious. The point is simple. Our life is a printout of our subconscious programs. I say, what does that mm-hmm. mean? I say, look, look at your life. Anything that you like and you love and it comes into your life, ah, it comes in because you have a program that allows it to be there. In contrast, yes. and this is the one I want people to understand, anything you work hard at, put a lot of effort into, anything you struggle over, sweat over, why are you working so hard to accomplish that? The answer, inevitably, you don't have a program to support that. So I said, well, you don't have to go backwards in your life to find what your programs are. You're living your program. Just look at your yes. life and say, the issues where struggles are almost inevitably reflect a program that will prevent you from going to your desired destination. So automatically, I say, you already know what your programs are. You're living them. And then I say, well, you want to change these programs. And that becomes the part that, you remember, you were doing all that stuff with the Simontons and all those other people. Mm-hmm. about how do we do this? And the first thing is this. The two minds are not connected with each other in the sense that, oh, if the conscious mind becomes aware, then the subconscious mind should automatically know that. Look, I was aware of all this biology, and my life was exactly the same life it was before yeah. until I had to do something different. And the answer is this. The answer is that our lives are actually the, these programs, and our conscious mind does not connect to the subconscious program so i can read a self-help book oh yeah my conscious mind becomes super educated yeah this is the right thing to do and this is how i should do it i i can go to a lecture and go yes that person said exactly what i need to know my conscious mind learned it because my conscious mind being creative learns from reading the book going to the lecture uh watching the video uh, the conscious mm-hmm. mind can learn by going aha i have an idea and the conscious mind's changed i go and with all those changes in the conscious mind did it affect a change in the subconscious mind i go no. And the reason is this. The subconscious mind is not creative. It doesn't learn that way. The subconscious mind learns primarily in two ways. The first, during the first seven years of your life, was hypnosis. And after age seven, how'd you put new programs in? Habituation, repetition, doing the thing, repeating yes. it. How many times did you have to say A, B, C till you could get to Z? Repetition. So I say, oh, so I can educate the conscious mind by reading the book, but that in no way changes the subconscious mind. Why? It's not repetition. It's not hypnosis. It doesn't learn. As I said, the frustrating part is most people see a bad behavior they have and then get upset with themselves and then talk to themselves earnestly. No, don't do that again, you stupid idiot, you know, and you're mad at yourself and you're yelling, and then you find yourself doing the same thing over again. That gets frustrating because it's like, well, didn't I tell you not to do that, mind? And the mind's still yeah. doing it. I go, who are you talking to? I say, well, I'm talking to subconscious. I go, big problem. Nobody's in there. Yes. It's sort of like uh, a CD player with a CD with a program on it. You put the player, you push play, the program's playing. You don't like the program. I say, go, go ahead and talk to the CD player for a while and see how long it's going to take to change the program. The answer is, I'll never change the program because that's not how it works. You've got to push the record yes. button. And there are three ways now to fundamentally change the subconscious. Anything else is not really effective. Three ways are hypnosis. Yes, every night as you go to bed, just as your mind is disconnecting, the conscious mind is just going off into sleep, the brain mm-hmm. is in a state of theta, which is the hypnosis phase. So putting earphones on as you're going to bed and having a program play with you know, program wishes and desires that you would like to program in your mind, 
Well, every night you can do that as you put the headphones on as you're going to bed. As you yes. go to sleep, the subconscious mind is now recording. Uh, that's one way. Uh, yes. Habituation. In you other words, program the person that you want to be exactly. consciously by utilizing program. the theta state, basically. That's exactly. Low alpha yes. theta. Yeah. And, and if you're not in theta, you can put a new program in, just like, well, how'd you learn how to drive a car? You practice driving the car. That's right. Uh, how'd you do the repetition? ABCs? Yeah. Like a mantra. Repeat. So yes. the idea is you want a new life, then you have to generate a behavior. And it may seem totally alien because you're not living that life. I say, I don't care if it's alien. Practice it. Repeat yes. it as if it's true. And repeat it. And it's, at first it seems like so out of sorts because what you're trying to put in is a program that you don't have. So whatever you're trying to behave, your system is going, this is not us. <laughs> I say, don't worry. Yes. Just keep repeating it because repetition. Yes. And then lastly, um, there's a, a wonderful uh, new uh, way of introducing programs that is rapid. With, I mean, you can change programs in minutes. With, with These are things called energy psychology. A whole yes. bunch of different modalities of ways of engaging what's called super learning. And it, with super learning, you can re- download a new belief in 10 minutes or so and rewrite an existing belief. Uh, and it's amazing and necessary because, you know, look, uh, it, it, what is that invention is, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. That's we right. have a necessity to change right now. Why? Because human behavior is undermining the world in which we live and destroying civilization. We're going it's literally destroying our ecosystem. Right. On we're which the, we we're depend the for that the virus affecting the system. Uh, exactly. And so nature is saying, look, I'm giving you a chance. You've got a chance to change your mind, start to live in harmony, or goodbye. So it says, well, we don't have a lot of time. And so thankfully these energy psychology modalities show up that gives us an opportunity to change uh, our limiting behaviors uh, in matters of minutes, and we can rewrite. And when we do that, it's the same as taking the red pill by simply this. If I rewrite the negative programs and put positive programs in its place, then what does it mean? It says, well, whether I'm being conscious or whether I'm defaulting the subconscious, I'm still going through the same direction. So uh, you could uh, put all the wishes and desires in your conscious mind into your subconscious, and guess what? You'd be living heaven on earth every day of your life, whether you're paying attention or not. So there's a wonderful resolution and a destination, and that is if we take the power back, look at our lives, find what doesn't work, rewrite those programs to give us a positive outcome, then all of us could have a heaven on earth experience every day of our life for as long as we live. And that's what nature is calling on us to do. Change Absolutely. these programs because they're destructive. Let me add something here, Bruce. I want to. I really like to set historical context for some of what you're saying. So I want to just bring forward a couple of thoughts. One is that when you were saying that our current daily lives, uh, you don't have to go on a on a search on a manhunt into our early lives because everything that got programmed then is manifesting, as you well put it. Now, so I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. Um, That thought was uh, largely articulated by Fritz Perls in the formation of Gestalt Therapy. And it wasn't that it started there, but he was a breakthrough thinker in that time of the uh, really, I think, late 50s and uh, early 60s. And that became quite a splash in uh, being a counterpoint to the work of Freud and Jung, for that matter, of psych- psychoanalytic thinking, Adler et al. 
Um, so that that's one thing. The other is another person that said that in the early to mid-60s was um, Werner Erhardt. And that became the basis of really, to some extent, the um, ontology of Est, and then later the Forum, and then what later became the Landmark Forum, and, um, and a kind of uh, teaching and consulting that recognizes that who we are today um, is a function of who we were then, and that is a subconscious belief and program that got installed. And we also have to give credit to the early psychoanalysts because it was understood the profound role that mother and father play in our early development. And you've referred to seven years a number of times, and I know you referred to the trimester, but, I mean, I would really suggest that um, it's eight years because it really began, I believe, and I, I think that there is science that shows that at the very beginning of the formation of the nervous system in the, uh, in the um, embryo, that it is responding to sound and it's responding to vibration. And there are some sounds and vibrations that are very, very good when the mother is being loving and cuddling and uh, affectionate toward the little being growing, growing inside, or she's being scolded by her mother because her mother doesn't really like the selection she made of her spouse or of the father of the little one or what have you. You don't have enough money. You haven't done what I've told you, whatever the stories may be. So I suggest, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about it, that the effect of the parents in utero is having a profound effect really actually starting at inception, virtually the zygote, maybe a little bit more. Perhaps um, in the last trimester, the effect, of course, it only makes sense, becomes even deeper. But I'm suggesting that on a vibrational frequency level, sound level, um, it's actually affecting from the outset. Your thoughts? I, I have to agree with you that, with that, Mitchell, and it's really wonderful. That's why I love talking with you, because you, this is a very important point. Parents don't yeah. realize, because the new science is called epigenetics, that the yeah. environment is controlling genetics, and parents don't realize that they're acting as genetic engineers of their own child. Exactly. Their perceptions of the world are translated into chemistry, which controls the genetics and behavior of the fetus as it's developing. So uh, this is really important for parents to be, to recognize your thoughts are translated into chemistry that affect your biology and your genetics, but that chemistry in the blood crosses the placenta, so you're not just nourishing yes. the child with your blood. You're feeding it information. That information via epigenetics can regulate the genetic activity of the child. So all of a sudden you realize, yeah, the attitude of the parents while this early-stage fetus is developing are profoundly important in influencing the health and life of that child for the rest of its existence. Exactly. So therefore, our job as humans, um, once we start to, after we've read Bruce Lipton, no, after we have started to come to awareness 
of the phenomenon of the di- distinction between conscious and unconscious to subconscious, we go, oh my, I do see that I'm like my daddy and my mommy. I do see that I'm also, by the way, like my sibling, which only stands to reason. I mm-hmm. want to be me, <laughs> you know, like the great song. I want to be me, you know, like <laughs> Muppets or something. And, um, and so yeah. it's, a, it's very funny, but it's also very real because then we can in fact choose the values that we feel as adults we want to embrace. We can choose the uh, means of integrity by which we want to live. We can choose our own interests in music and dance and culture. We can choose what we want to be professionally. We don't have to become the doctor that our mommy and daddy wanted us to be. We may want to maybe want to be an artist and we learn to follow that thread. This is where I want to ask you a question. Uh, because and it, it dovetails right into energy psychology, which I'll also argue goes back to ancient times. It goes back to ancient Tibetan times, ancient Chinese times, ancient Ayurvedic times in the use of herbs, interestingly, in the use of gemstones, in the use of acupuncture, which is an electrical medicine, and when used fully, is also a form of energy psychology. But coming a little bit, again, that's just historical antecedent to this. Um, I want to bring up this thought Do you think, since every thought and every feeling, which means every belief system, has a bioelectrical and a biochemical profile, could we change the valence of those belief systems um, in such a way, Bruce, you could almost say mechanically, electrically, through using electricity to shift the consciousness and the power of the belief system? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it was a, there, um, I forgot the man's name. It was from Canada, uh, and he created a, a, like a head, uh, like a, a, a cap you put over your head with uh, magnetic coils in it. And uh, what he showed was by changing the current in this cap, it could affect the consciousness of the person. Uh, the, it actually could send them into hallucination. I know who you're talking about. Yes. Who was the name? Go ahead. It's Inger. His name is Winkaper. Okay, All right. the name escapes, but the reality is what? Yes. The thoughts that are in our head are affected by the fields around our head. And yes. that, that we're connected with each other through the energy field, which is part of the new biology, because the old biology is, oh, no, there's just the physical realm, and there's chemistry, and there's drugs, and all that stuff, and that's the yes, only thing that right. affects life. Matter of fact, when I was uh, at Stanford, and the, one of the last papers I wrote, uh, research papers I wrote, I was going to use the word mind in there, and I wrote mind, and you should have seen the response of my colleagues. They were <laughs> apoplectic. They were like, you can't use the word mind. That's not scientific. So the concept of mind is not science. I go, what? <laughs> yes, right. right. And yet, uh, we left that out. Uh, and the reason why, and I have to really be honest about it, is uh, yes. because medicine is not a, a, a free institution in regard to uh, picking up awareness and learning and moving into it, because it's regulated by the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical yes. industry brings into healthcare anything that is where they can make a profit from it. If yes. pharmaceutical it's just economically could, based. It's not scientifically based. No, it's economic, totally. I mean, if the pharmaceutical yeah. company could make a pill that equivalent to energy or a tablet that was like energy, they would right. sell energy medicine. 
But you yeah. can't put it in a you can't unify or unitize it and put it into units and sell it. And as a result, they have zero interest as an industry in anything that is not chemically related. So not that there's uh, uh, there's a uh, you know like no science uh, to support energy healing. There's tremendous science about energy fields affecting every aspect of human yes. biology, from DNA to RNA to protein synthesis, can be controlled by electromagnetic fields, uh, morphogenesis, yes. differentiation, mitosis, all these functions of cells. And I said, well, that's in the literature, uh, but it's not in, sci- in the medical science. I go, why not? It's not in the interest of the pharmaceutical industry because there's no profit behind it. And therefore, Correct. we are led to, by the, by the advertising and the money of that industry, to not go into these areas is totally antagonistic to the things that you've been doing in your life and the things I've been doing in my life. Why? Because the things that we do give people power without selling them a drug. And this is not the interest of the medical industry. And uh, and it's unfortunate because people think, oh, the medical industry is leading at science. I get, oh, my God, some of it is so archaic and so old and so out of date, but it, it's keeping the money going, such as cancer treatment. I just saw again, oh, here we start again. It's about every 15 years I see this. Now, I'm old enough now to see it a lot. It's about every 15 years they say, oh, we're close to a cure for cancer. Just some more money. <laughs> just donate some more money. And I've heard a that few every 15 more billion, years. please. <laughs> and, and then yeah. I say, you know what's interesting? With all of the billions of dollars that have been put in the system, here's a simple truth. They're using the exact same way to treat cancer that they did in 1930. It is no different what they do in 1930. Chemotherapy, radiation therapy, uh, surgery. I go, oh, they're still doing that. And I go, with billions of dollars, we're still back with the old 1930s technology. It's, it's amazing. Money. It's amazing. Money, yeah. It's all money. But let's go back. I uh, very much appreciate that, and we spend a fair amount of time maybe inordinate on this show, um, describing the distinctions in medicine and big pharma and what's useful and practical and effective and what is just business as usual. And we do a lot to educate our audience here, Bruce, about making these discernments. And they're important because, as you said before, there are a whole lot of doctors out there who meet, who went into this field to really help people, and they're not given the tools to do it. I, I quote, um, you know, the psychologist Abraham Maslow all the time and saying that if the only tool you have is a hammer, you'll tend to see the world as nails. So. Yes. If you're a, yeah. a doctor and you've been taught in medical school that you either have a scalpel or a pill, guess what you're going to be prescribing? So it's 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 almost no pun intended dogmatic and you know dog eat dog as well <laughs> in that domain and it's the exception of the brilliant and the deeply compassionate doctor of which there are so many um, that says, wait a minute. I've been programmed, and yeah. I think there's a whole lot more, and the scientific literature so powerfully supports the role of nutrition, the role of the mind, the role, even psychoneuroimmunology, you know, is just a, actually, that's one of the medicine's greatest um, 
triumphs in recent years, that it, it's formally recognizing the relationship between emotions, psyche, and the immune system. You know, God bless them, you know. Yeah, well, so, you know, it's interesting, Mitchell. I talked with one of my students who was a – he's been a doctor for 30 years. That's how long ago I was teaching in medical school anyway. Yes, And, yes. and it was interesting because when we were having a conversation and the word healing came up, you know, he said to me, you know, Bruce, in four years while I was a student at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine, in all the yes. courses I took in four years, not once did the word healing become part of the program. Never. Oh, bye. Oh, and then boy. I said to him, well, Aren't you a healer? And I want I want you to listen to what he said because it's like, oh my God, I got it. You ready? I said, aren't yeah. you a healer? He says, no. I said, well, what do you do? And this is what he said. <laughs> he said, my job is to help people maintain lifestyle. I said, what does that mean? It's like, well, you have oh. a, a crappy lifestyle that could kill you. His job is not to say change your lifestyle. His job is saying, oh, well, if you have this lifestyle, what medication can I give you to offset the negative effects of this lifestyle? So keep your lifestyle, oh, take my drug. Oh, my. <gasps> and that's exactly what oh, it is. My. Don't change your life, just take the drug. And it's like, oh, my God, that was your problem. It was all lifestyle to begin with. So yes, exactly. Their don't don't if you change your lifestyle and you become healthy then nobody needs a drug and all of a sudden well that's not the mission of the of the system <laughs> the system is to make sure yeah. every patient that comes into that doctor's office when they leave have a prescription this is what I, I that's that's daunting i've got to say this is where my mind is going when we think about energy psychology and uh energy medicine and as you know i've been involved in both for uh many decades actually yes. at this point um and but I want to kind of flesh something out in a particular way and see um, if this makes sense to you wearing your cellular biology science, uh, scientist hat. And that is, let's say that a certain thought, I am not lovable, I am not worthy, those I feel are very much at the base of the human psyche. And why is a whole baby. other com- <laughs> right? Okay? I, I'm not going to go into the whys right now. But let's just say each of those sentiments have a measurable charge, an actual electrical charge, okay? Let's just call it a five ohms, okay? What if we were to administer the opposite of it, and I like to say, we we make a person a big fat zero. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm kidding. Um, but uh, you know, so we we administer a negative five, and it does bring them to zero on the emotion scale of discharging, decharging, neutralizing that negative imprint program from way 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 back when. Well, is that this is what so critical. We're um, doing, uh, yeah, Mitchell. This is a critical point for this reason. Yes. When parents are raising a child, they want the child to conform, okay? So mm-hmm. a, a parent behaves like a coach on a team. Think about it this way. A uh, player's not performing well, and the coach says, look, you don't deserve this position here. You're not that good. Who do you think you are? Uh, and it says that. Well, the idea yes. is that this, this, person, this, this person on the team is conscious enough to know, oh, the coach is saying that because I'm not really doing my best, and he's trying to get me to do better. That's why he says these uh-huh. things. I say, great. Now I say, yeah, but when a parent acts as a coach to a kid under seven, then we have to realize this. Consciousness of the child isn't working. 
the child is just recording directly what the parents say into the brain. Oh, yes. you're not that smart. You're not that lovable. You don't deserve things. You, you know, whatever. You're not good at this. You're a sickly child. Right. They're saying these things like a coach trying to needle the kid to do better, but unaware that the kid is not thinking in that fashion. The kid is just yes. recording. Oh, okay, I'm not deserving. I'm not lovable. I'm not I am this. in recording mode. I am in recording mode. That's right. <laughs> and so when they record... All of that is negative because they didn't see, there wasn't the consciousness to see what the positive aspect was about. So why am I bringing it up? Because as you brought up, most of the programming critical of ourselves is that built into our subconscious. I go, well, why is that relevant? Well, if your subconscious is running the show and you are critical of yourself, then by definition, you don't love yourself. Because if you love yourself, you wouldn't be criticizing yourself so much. And then I say, well, what's the issue with that? I say, well, if you, in your mind, don't love yourself, because of these programs, and someone comes up and you know, and you get close, and they say they love you, and then you think, well, well, obviously they have no quality control because I can't love me. How the hell can they love me? <laughs> and, and, yeah, and the fact right. is this: we will sabotage uh-huh. any love to prove the conscious, the subconscious mind's belief it's that I'm correct. not lovable. The only way I can prove I'm not lovable is to, uh, you know, stop. Any interaction right. that could lead to sabotage or a good relationship, for instance. Absolutely, and then you conform yeah. to the belief system. And the fact is, yeah, That's but correct. if we're all looking for love, and then we try to get it, and then the subconscious cancels it, then we see, oh my God, we are so critical of ourselves that we cannot experience love, even if someone comes up and wants to love us. And, and you know, here's a secondary consequence of that: because what is the consequence of not being loved? Well, you're being left out of the community. And then you, your mind is going to go back and say, well, geez, I'm not part of the community because nobody loves me. Not the fact that they don't love you, but every time they come up and try and love you, you yes. push them away because I am not lovable. And I go, well, and, and this is like the sneaky part. You ready? People yes. will go in their mind, their database, their little Rolodex. When, when did I get love? When did people love me and my family? Almost inevitably, most people will go, when I was sick, People, my parents were much more attentive yes. to me, and they loved me much more. Yes. And I go, oh, so the subconscious mind is working out the detail. You want love. Oh, you got love when you were sick. Oh, okay. The subconscious mind will create illness. And it That's creates right. illness for what? Seeking love, not because it wanted Seeking to be love. sick. And, Seeking and, attention. And a lot of illness That's right. comes from that. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought this. This is a very important point. And the subconscious works literally. I, that's another point that I think is very important. The, the subconscious in itself is not the imaginative part of our mind. You know? it's, no, that's conscious. It's, that's conscious. Right, mind, not that's conscious. So the subconscious takes, so when you say something like, you know, that, that, experience or that person makes me sick to my stomach guess what the subconscious hears and literally it begins to somatize that language so i would like to also add to your brilliant um thesis uh proven by the way um about the power of the image in the mind bruce is the power of the language in the mind as well you're dealing with both image and word and they are, pardon the old expression, but made flesh, you know. 
Well, that that's exactly it. And if we own that reality, then it says, well, if you want to take control of your life, you don't do it through drugs and chemistry and surgery and stuff like that. You do it by what? Changing the image of your mind. And, yes. and that's where and the language and the language and the story that you tell. Yeah, well, yourself. that's certainly creating yeah. an image as well when you interpret the words that's yourself. Right. Very yeah. true. Yeah, very so true. people are very powerful but have no knowledge of it. And, and the issue is they don't even have knowledge that they're the ones that's shooting themselves in the foot. Every day they go out and then they come home with this bloody foot and they go, oh, my God, I'm being shot in the foot. <laughs> and How in the world realize, did that happen? Exactly. Yeah, and they were the one with a smoking gun in their hand, but they don't see it because it's subconscious. So you're also making um, an argument by, by implication here that thinking – now, thinking has its own dignity as a creative, wonderful, and conscious act. So I'm, I'm leaving that aside for a moment because it's what you were saying before, like when we we're trying to remember when you asked me, what am I doing on, on uh, Wednesday at 2 o'clock? And then I would have to go into a thinking mode. I'm going into a retrieval mode to get information from memory. Um, yes. And, but that takes me out of, you know, uh, present moment awareness and that is the space then, because nature abhors a vacuum, that the subconscious kicks in. Now, um, there's another thing, by implication I was saying, that if we were, though, aware, if we could cultivate awareness of our mind and bodies throughout a given day, we can start to shift that subconscious uh, domination or governance over our lives from 95 to 93 to 89, you know, and, but would you say, and what else would you say about awareness being the point of leverage between uh, shifting those ratios? Well, that, that's what got me out of my old program and into the new one, because the moment I started to listen to my own thoughts, which you know, they go so fast in your head that you don't really stop. They You're do. just caught up in the flow. And I say if you stop and listen to the flow and you start to realize most of them are negative, there's this moment of empowerment. What, what empowerment is it? Well, you're the one I can say continue the thought or change the thought. And, yes. and since the thoughts are the, the, you know, the foundation of our creation, if you're yes. the one that can regulate it, then you're the one that's regulating your creation. And that's, that's what the right. difference is. Like when I said the honeymoon effect, where that's you right. did this, you created the honeymoon. It didn't happen by accident, but you did that's it right. by not uh, you know, defaulting to that subconscious program while you were conscious. And if you did that that's at right. any stage of your life, that would be the moment where you take power over your life. That's right. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, you know, that's where the ancient practices that have been modernized in some pretty interesting ways, like meditation, like Tai Chi Chuan, things that slow down the frequencies of the brain, create mind co brain coherence between the two hemispheres, and, of course, the wonderful work of heart math of uh, talking about creating heart coherence, we're creating a new body, a new habituation, as you were putting it well before, you know, to be mindful of a new way of being. And that we have access to that all day long. If we're right, willing to, have to be slow down. 
I'm you sorry? have to be conscious of it. And if you're not you conscious, conscious of it, it's invisible. And that's the, exactly. the problem is the invisibility of it because it takes you that's out right. of being an active participant but a recipient of what's going on in your life. But when you become conscious, it's like, wait, I want to put my hands on the wheel and drive this vehicle because it's been on autopilot 95% of the day. Exactly. I want to bring up a couple of things. It's a beautiful time with you, Bruce, as always. And I'm enjoying so much. And you know I, I so do appreciate your, your brilliance and your thoughts and, and the logic inherent and the revolutionary nature. But I want to get into two things that we haven't touched on yet. One is... Um, the membrane, which you have so uh, humorously and accurately described as the brain inside a cell, and I'd love to hear what you talk about the um, the hair-like antennae there that listen to their environment as why they respond and to what they respond, as well as I want to frame the whole conversation and where we you see us going from the point of evolution, because as I was saying to you the other day when we saw each other, you know, I feel that we are really devolving to some extent. Um, there's some evidence that our brains after 2 million years are actually, in some cases, contracting, not expanding. And that's a little alarming to we evolutionists. But I'd love <laughs> to hear what you have to say about um, the role of the membrane and getting clearer for people about what it's um, – higher role is, and then framing the whole conversation in terms of evolution. Well, the interesting story, as you mentioned, is that uh, in our conventional world, and still in the textbooks right now, is the belief is that the brain of the cell is the nucleus of the cell. And, and the reason why they attribute that function to the nucleus is that the nucleus contains almost all the DNA. And then there's the belief that DNA makes decisions. So then you say, well, if all the DNA is essentially in the nucleus and the DNA is making decisions for the cell, then the nucleus is like a brain and the DNA are like neurons making the control. And it turns yes. out this is completely wrong because you can remove the nucleus from the cell and the cell can live for three or more months with no genes in it. And I go, well, this is just sitting there. I go, no, it's got the same complex kind of behavior going on. It's, uh, it's eating and breathing and uh, uh, digesting and moving around and communicating with other cells. <laughs> all of its motor functions. functions. All of its all motor functions, functions are still say, going right? and it's coordinated so it's not an accident, so there's a coordination. Something's coordinating behavior. The brain is the structure that coordinates the behavior. And you say, well, but there's no nucleus and there's no genes. So the first thing is, well, the genes did not, uh, you know, were not engaged in that coordination. So I said, well, what is? What's left? And then that led me to the study of the cell membrane, the skin of the cell. And in my research on the cell membrane, uh, to, you know, to give you the simplest summary without going into you know, the whole scientific detail, uh, right. is the membrane of the cell is uh, a homolog, and you say, what's homolog? I say, analog or homolog? Analog means A is like B, so uh, something is like this, but they're not the same. But when you say homologous, when when you say uh, homologous instead of analogous, homologous means A is the same as B, not like B, but the same as B. As in homeo, homeopathy, homosexual for that matter, you know. Yeah, so we're in uh, the homolog of uh, what is the cell membrane. It's actually a computer chip. It's got proteins that are bits of data. A bit of data in a computer is called an I slash O, input slash output. 
Well, mm-hmm. the proteins in the membrane, there are two classes of proteins that I'm talking about. One are receptors that read the signals. So by definition, that's the input. The signals come in through the receptor, I. But the, the receptor connects to another protein called an effector that makes an effect uh, in response to the signal. So that's the output. And so the cell membrane uh, has uh, these bits of data in it, and they read the environmental signals, and then the receptor picks up the signal and then connects to the uh, effector, which sends a signal into the cell to adjust the biology in response to what's going on in the world. Uh, And this becomes really important because then the behavior of the Mm. cell is controlled by the membrane. And, and then I, but I think we mentioned earlier that uh, cells have all the same functions as people have. That's where we got our functions from. And yes. it's interesting because they say, well, a, bra- a cell is like a person. And then people say, you mean our brain is coming from our skin? I go, yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, in yes. embryology, the, the brain is derived from the skin that was on the back of the embryo that folds in and forms a tube with a brain at one end and a spinal cord going down the length. I say, where did all, all those cells come from? I say, they used to be skin, but they pulled into the body. So it's, oh, yeah, so a human nervous system is derived from the skin, uh, and the cell's membrane is its skin, and that's its nervous system. So they're both exactly the same. Uh, and I go, well, this becomes really important because if you keep looking for the nucleus as what's controlling the cell and trying to adjust biology by adjusting the genes, you have missed the entire understanding of it. You want to adjust the cell, you adjust it through the cell membrane. So focusing on the genes has been our biggest problem because the genes do not make decisions. The genes have no awareness. They're just blueprints, as we mentioned. So uh, so we, we start to look at the membrane as controlling this. And one of the things that really, and this was major to me, uh, Mitchell, because as we've discussed in the past, when I was a conventional scientist, I was not a spiritual person because my programming was, oh, genes control life and we're biochemical machines controlled by genes and we're here and then you die yes. and all of a sudden it goes Genetic determinism, Earth. as you were saying. And that's it. And it's a materialistic view. Absolutely, because we were only looking at that point of what are the physical things that affect the cell membrane? Drugs. <laughs> That's what That's you put right. in the, the right. system, a drug A better world through membrane. chemistry, <laughs> yes. So what was interesting was on the surface of our cells, we have sets of receptors that no two people share. So each of us has a unique set of antennas, protein antennas. They're just they're receptors on the surface of the cell that makes us different from each other. Science has studied a bunch of them and gave them the name self-receptors. Well, they were just looking at the physical character that the receptor itself was, was the, the thing that made you different from somebody else. They failed to really recognize is the receptor response to a signal. And so, well, we have these antennas that distinguish us, and no two people have the same set of antennas. The antennas are re- reading a signal from the environment. <coughs> Excuse me. The significance is your identity is determined by these receptors. If I put my cells into your body, your immune system will look at my cells and say, oh, this is not self. These are foreign cells, and eliminate the foreign cells. I say, well, how does it know it's foreign? I said, because on the surface are these identity receptors. So that distinguishes um, uh, identity. And I say, when they want to transplant an organ, they just don't take anybody's heart and stick it in anybody else. They try to find a donor whose 
self-receptors are more complementary to the recipient. The closer mm. they are, the less the rejection. So mm-hmm. it's called tissue typing. Excuse me. It's called what? I'm sorry? Tissue typing. When you tissue match typing. Okay. Donor, so it's not just match... blood typing. It's no, it's tissue, tissue typing. typing. You've got to find out okay. what the self-receptors are. It's like a large combination yes. lock. And we can share parts of them, but no two people have the exact same combination. Surely. But some people Surely. can have overlap, and that's how you pick right. who's the best donor. There's greater or lesser compatibility. Right. And then I say, well, great. But we know that it's the receptors that give the identity. And I say, yeah, but the receptors have uh, antennas on the outside of the cell. And I say, yeah, but the receptors receive something. That's what is called receptor. I say, well, what's mm-hmm. it receiving? Well, obviously, it's receiving a signal of self because that's what's being picked up. I go, wow, why is that interesting? The moment I saw that in the membrane, the brain of the cell and how it worked, and the identity, I said, oh, my God, I cannot die. For the reason is this. I am not the cell. I am the broadcast picked up by the cell. I'm something from outside. That's I'm a broadcast. Like, I so knew we imagine, were going, Bruce. Yes, a, a, I love it. <laughs> a body is like a television set. And on my cells, the antennas are receiving the Bruce show, and on your cells, they're receiving the Mitchell show. (laughs) And the idea about it is what? Well, you're watching a TV. The TV breaks. We say the television's dead. And I go, yeah, the television's dead. It's not working. Is the broadcast still there? Yes, of course it's still there. You get another TV. You plug it in, turn it on, and when you tune it, tune it to the station, you can see the show is still on the air. Well, all of a sudden I realize. In that moment, that instant, I said, wait a minute. Bruce is an identity of a broadcast picked up by the field, by these receptors. If the body mm-hmm. cells die, the broadcast is still there. But I said, well, what would happen? I said, well, if a future body shows up with the same complex of receptors, then I'm back on the air, but in a different body. Is it a male uh-huh. body or a female body? Well, that's not relevant. Is it white right. or black? But well, That's not relevant. That's the television set. We're the broadcast. We're not the TV. And I go, oh, my God, I can't die. I'm not even in here. And I had this very remarkable moment because now my God, brain yes. is totally confused after being not spiritual my whole life. And then yes. looking at this in this one moment, I said, wait a minute. Why have a spirit and a body? Why not just be the spirit? And that's what, yes. Mitchell, I knew I had Jewish cells at that moment for a reason. I asked the question of myself, why have both a, spot, uh, a spirit and a body? Why not just be a spirit? And my 50 trillion cells, being Jewish, responded with a question rather than a straight answer. I asked why I have both, and the cells brought to my attention this question. That's it said, so Bruce, if you're just a spirit, what does chocolate taste like? And all of a sudden, I said, oh, my God. I got it. This biological body with its cells is the equivalent of a virtual reality suit. I have eyes. Oh, well, the eyes pick up the field and the environment and make images and pictures. Yes, I have ears. Yes, it picks up the vibrational images of the field but makes sound out of it, okay? Uh, I have mm. a, a nose. I can smell chemistry because my, my uh, ner- nerve cells in my nose are picking up the environmental information. It's interesting whether it's eyes, ears, nose, taste, touch, you know, pressure, pain, yes. um, these receptors convert the environment into vibration. 
because the nervous system reads vibration. It doesn't, it doesn't see the picture that you see. It doesn't smell the rose that you, that you see. It's, it's converting the chemistry into vibration. So the brain responds to vibration, and that vibration is then broadcast back to source. So if I didn't have a body, I could have great imagination, but I wouldn't be able to have any personal new experiences. My experiences mm-hmm. come from stepping into the body. And love yes. is an experience. It's a chemistry of your body that is translated by the nervous system into a vibration sent back to source. So I say, oh, my God. Then this is the blow-away part. You ready? I realize mm-hmm. for my whole life, everybody's life experiences from religious whatever says, oh, if you have a wonderful life and you're really good and moral and all that kind of stuff, then you died. You can go to heaven. And I say, well, what's heaven? Well, everybody creates a vision of their own vision of heaven. No two people have the same vision. That's their creation. I go, you mm-hmm. know what? Biggest joke. Biggest joke. I think we were born into heaven. We came here as an energy spirit, a field. But we get into this body like, you know, we step into the suit. And when we're in the suit, we can move it around, and we can create with it. And everything we do brings a sensation, the sensation, in through the body, through the nervous system. The nervous system sends it back to source. So my source can feel what love is like by the vibrations from my brain. My uh, source can see what a landscape looks like because the image of my eye is translated into vibration sent back to source. And it sounds kind of weird, but then let me give you an, an analogy that would make better sense out of it. I say, look. I can't go to Mars, but I sure as heck would like, what's it like to live on Mars? Well, we can't send a human up. Oh, what do we do? We send up something called the Mars Rover. You look at it it's like a very sophisticated go-kart with a lot of equipment on it. I go, <laughs> no matter what it looks like, it's the equivalent of a human in this sense. It can yes. move around. It can smell, taste, visualize, hear, listen, uh, assess what's going on in the environment. I go, well, how does it work? I say, ah, oh, there's a guy at NASA. He sends a signal. There's an antenna on the rover that picks up the signal. And with that signal, he directs the rover to go here and there and that. And whatever the rover is experiencing, the receptors on the rover send back that information to the guy at NASA. So I can tell you what the temperature is, what the lighting is about, what the chemistry is, all these other things. So I can give you an idea of what it's like to be on Mars and I'm not there. And I say, what's really interesting is the vehicle is being run by the guy at NASA. And I say, well, what if the Mars rover's batteries die? I say, oh, the rover's dead. And I go, the guy at NASA die? No, he's there. <laughs> Guess what? They'll probably send up another rover like they did. And I go, yeah, but it won't be the same as the first one, but it could still have the same driver. I say, wow. Then I go, just oh, to make the analogy complete, word. we are oh, Earth rovers. Word. We come yes. to this planet to manifest, to move our vehicles around, to create, to learn from our creation through the sensory responses that are sent back to source. And I know your information is not contained in your head because when you put, you want to read brain activity, we put wires on a person's head. It's called electroencephalograph. And you could read the brain function because the electrical activity of the brain is conducted to the skin, and you put the electrodes on the skin, and you could read the brain activity. And I go, yeah, and guess what? There's a new way to read the brain function, not electroencephalograph. It's called magnetoencephalograph. Mm-hmm. In other words, instead of reading the electric field, it reads the magnetic field resulting from thought. And guess what? The probe does not touch your head. The probe is outside your head. In the field. In the field. Why is it relevant? Oh, my. You think your thoughts are in your head? 
no, they're not. Forget I can about read it. With a device out here, right. and all of a sudden I say, "Oh my God!" Then my brain is like a tuning fork; it sends out vibration, and I go, "Uh oh, what does that mean?" I go, "There's a thing called <laughs> resonance, harmony, and resonance. Yeah. If two things vibrate at the same same vibration, then one can tuning activate the others. Pork. So I have two guitars." Yeah. I pluck the A string on one. The A note vibrates from guitar one, but as it passes over guitar two, the A string on guitar two, tuned to the same vibration, will pick up that vibration and start to resonate and vibrate. I go, well, then the string on guitar two was activated by the string on guitar one. I go, yeah. And then here comes the interesting part. If I stop the guitar one, the one I plucked the A string on, I stop the vibration, but guitar two was still vibrating from the picking it up, then the vibration that's active in guitar two can go back and activate guitar one again, the same A string. Feedback you know, oh, that sounds interesting. I go, no, you see, it's called the law of return, meaning yeah. I send out this vibration. It will only activate anything that's in harmony with it. It will not activate the other strings on the guitar. I send out an A note, only the A string vibrates. The other strings don't vibrate. I go, and then what happens? Well, once the A string on the second guitar starts to vibrate, it can send back the original vibration to me. I go, you know, the energy in guitar two that caused it to vibrate is your own energy. You activate Mm. guitar two. When it vibrates, if you stop vibrating, guitar two will come back and re-vibrate you, but it's your own energy coming back. The law of return. Your thoughts are a tuning fork. You send them out in the field. The thoughts will only resonate that which is in harmony with that thought. You have a negative thought. It's not going to activate a positive response. It's going to activate a negative thing, and that will activate it, cause it to vibrate, and it will come to you. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God. What happens in our lives is a reflection of the tuning fork in our brain, which we send out a thought, and we send out a negative thought, then you're damn well going to have to expect that something negative is going to come back because it's the only thing that's going to respond to that vibration. You want to change your life. You have to broadcast something different. And this becomes important because when you change your thoughts, you change the vibration. And if you start to put your thoughts instead of the fear and the protection and the stress responses that we have been vibrating to, and you start sending out love as a vibration, guess what? Love comes back to you. And it's physics. It's simple as physics. I was just going to say, this is just physics, man. It's even even Newtonian. It's not even quantum exactly, you know? Yeah. And so then I say, well, what what are the thoughts you're sending out? And I say, well, because a negative thought is a negative vibration and it will not activate a positive thing in your life. And I say, well, what are your thoughts you're sending out? I say, well, the unfortunate part is, as we mentioned before, they're running in your head all the time. You just never stop to listen to them. And if, uh, I yes, said that's when I first started to pay attention. was like, oh, my God, yes. these thoughts are not very positive in the end. Collectively, that's they're right. not that great. I had to change that's them. Right. But the moment I changed them, my life immediately and instantly changed from that. Oh, so beautiful. You are, this is, uh, by the way, you have stirred up the oxytocin big time. (laughs) (laughs) I hope the vasopressin is going right with it. (laughs) I I want people to understand it for a very important reason. Because when everybody, when anybody has fallen in love and they stop playing the program, those individuals become lovers. Those individuals create harmony. Those individuals create beauty. 
And why is, it, why is that relevant? Because if we'd all stop playing the damn programs that are limiting and sabotaging, which people have known they would do by programming us, as I said, the Jesuits knew, you will become whatever I program you to be. That's if right. we all collectively stop pro- the program, guess what? Then we all collectively start creating heaven on earth, and then that That's reality right. manifests. That the heaven you were thinking you were going to go to when you're dead, no. The heaven is right here. Why? Because this is the location where a thought can manifest into reality. You can die and then be a field and have a thought, but it it won't manifest anything because you have nothing to create, like a body, to use to create that thought. So welcome to heaven, everybody. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, you know. As you know, I teach a uh, a workshop in New York City called Heaven on Earth. And actually, not just in New York. I did one in Chicago recently and one on Long Island. I'll be doing another one out there this weekend. But, yes, I mean, I'm. you lay out the groundwork so magnificently through your own experience in your observation of the receptor sites on the membrane um, of those antenna and the role they play and the um, homology and analogy that that then led to, you could say by metaphor, you came to this epiphany. And I, I've enjoyed this story over and over again. I, it's almost like I can't hear it enough because what I feel you're doing um, in the telling of the story, Bruce, is you're helping to entrain my brain, let alone others, into that level of reality, of understanding ourselves as the broadcaster and the recipient of a broadcast, and that we are the tuning fork, which, by the way, um, I want to just say this is very high-level, you'll find this in very high-level metaphysics, you will, you've also laid the groundwork for the uh, much more sophisticated understanding of the law of attraction, if you will. And you're reminding me of one of my favorite um, scientists, psychoanalysts, and pianists, by the way, someone not well known at all in this country, named Dr. Hubert Benoit, who is an MD, surgeon, psychoanalyst, and author of a book, which you will really like, called The Many Faces of Love. <laughs> and uh, he actually wrote a lot on Zen. I translated a book of his that he gave me permission to do um, from French many, many moons ago um, called The Interior Realization, which, by the way, has everything to do with what you're speaking of, not in as exacting scientific or physiological uh lingo because he didn't have access to that but he had access to the fundamental understandings of us as tuning forks and behaving like instruments if you will i'm 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 grateful for your um clarity of expression here it's um it's really really helpful if people could get on board with well, I'd say all of what you've been talking about today, what we've been talking about, but even this last section of it, I mean, literally, it becomes a transformational moment in somebody's life to understand life as you did from this well, transform mind, really, say, spiritual like, point wow. of view. <laughs> it was so powerful that I had yeah. to leave the university because I realized 
staying in the university, all I was doing was just replicating old beliefs and passing them on to other people and and, yeah. and, and, and limiting their power by what I was teaching in the conventional world was you have no power and your life is just a whole series of accidents and genetic uh, activity that you have no control over when it's like this is completely false. We are all creators. We're all equally powerful. You and you say, well, why? how can we be equally powerful? Look at Bill Gates. He's got all these billions of dollars, and this person got all this money, and they got power, and we don't. And I say, the joke, since they knew you, we could be programmed, is they took the power out of us by programming us that we were not powerful. And yeah. as a result of our believing we are not powerful, and they still keeping the belief in their power, they kept powerful, and we lost our power. We lost yes. it not because we don't have power. We lost it because of our programming that says we don't have power. And yes. this is why, to me, it's so important for the public to take back control, because the few that are controlling us, the so-called powerful people, I do not care for the way they're running the show, actually. And what would I care <laughs> yeah. for? Because if the rest of the sleeping population woke up and their intention was to create heaven for themselves, then by definition, mm -hmm. if everyone was trying to create heaven, then the manifestation would result that earth would be recognized as heaven. And then Absolutely. people would create the beautiful heaven, rather than uh, I'm not creating the war by my intention. I'm not creating violence by my intention. Uh, it, I am a, a victim of uh, being swept up by this when everybody else has been programmed to say, oh, my God. By the collective uh, unconscious. Yeah. yeah, by the collective subconscious. Absolutely. Right, so. You know, if they were to do tissue samples of us, Bruce, I think our tissue typing would be very compatible. Well, then let's stay together, because if I need a part, I'm going to call you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Listen, keep my phone number, okay? <laughs> no, this is so beautiful. It's, it's you know, one of the ways I introduced you and the way you're introduced worldwide is um, bridging the gap between science and spirituality and spirit. And, um, the you know, Joe Dispenza, a, a colleague and friend of both of ours, uh, says that, um, he believes that science is the new language for spirituality and consciousness, and I, you know, I wholly agree. I believe we both do. And uh, you are articulating as you do your deep understanding of cellular biology shows by implication and demonstration the relationship between the grosser and the finer, you know, um, yeah. of the larger spectrum of what our universe consists of and who we are inside that and who we can become inside that. It's a, uh, it's really a heaven on earth. It's a heavenly arrangement. And like you, I'm always saying, I mean, just, just this morning or yesterday, I, I said, my God, look at what our creation is. Look at this world. We have as human beings such extraordinary, magnificent potential to create heaven on earth, to create joy and happiness and laughter, and um, we have amazing imagination. And this is what we're doing. We're blowing each other's brains out in all the great yeah. cities of the world. I mean, come on. Surely we can do better than this. Well, you know, and, and the, the simple point is a fact, is that the average person would not want any of this stuff. The average person right. wants to just be in peace, and most people want exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, right. I, 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 I want to be able to live. I want to be able to have a livelihood, a job. 
joy, family, culture. Yeah. It's all this, we all want the same. And therefore, that's right. What we end up with is not what people want. And then they say, "Well, how did we end up there?" And I said, "You've been programmed to end up there, not that's right. Not your conscious exactly. mind doing this. That's right. So, you've been led to believe these falsehoods, and you've made them real. And then it creates consensus. And then it creates, you know, what we refer to as the new normal. And it's it's utterly. I mean, I step outside of that box. I've been living out that out of that box for a long time. And I look in, and what I just simply see, Bruce, as I know you do, is pathology of early childhood pathology. And uh, you know, it's time to correct it. You know, it's time to correct the system. I that that's why we're talking. And that's why that's I hope our, our audience is listening because they are the powerful entities that don't realize they're powerful. And Absolutely. if they don't see their own power, then they, all they look at is, I can't do anything. I'm a victim of this world. It's like, no, no, you can change. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because it's like, well, should I go out and go march on ISIS right now? And I go, no, take care of your backyard. Remember The old hippie days, yeah. you said, before you go out and change the world, take care of your own backyard. And what I mean by that's that is right. our own backyard is our own belief system. If our own That's belief system right. sabotages us, then you cannot go forward and try to change the world. First, you fix yourself with That's your beliefs. Right. You learn to live in harmony, and all of a sudden you will – law of return, law of attraction. If you start living in harmony, guess who's going to be around you? People who also live in harmony. And That's that right. will get us out of the world we're in and move us to a better place. God bless you. A better world. A better world. Thank you. A better world. Hey, wait a minute. I like that (laughs) phrase. Oh, that's yours. Oh. (laughs) No, you know what? It's really ours. (laughs) I use it, but I'm borrowing it. And I appreciate it so much, Mitchell. Thank you. Good. I'm so glad. Bruce Lipton, I so appreciate you and your extraordinary work. It's a a beautiful gift and contribution to our world, to our noosphere, and to our atmosphere. And uh, you are helping to populate the field with, um, with brilliance and imagination and hope, by the way. A lot of beautiful hope. Oh, I, and the, yeah. phys- you know, the physiology I, I of hope is because... powerful. I know my yep. life is completely different, and it's completely different because I bought a new biology, uh, and I didn't yes. buy it like a new philosophy outside. I just said, oh, my God, if this is the way it works, then I'm the one that can change it. And it's like, yes, and That's I did, right. and, and I live in this much different world. Even I'm in living in the same place, I live in a different world. Yes, that's right, absolutely. I just realized that I just wanted to last point if you would take a moment and just i had asked the question about framing it from an evolutionary point of view and i was making sort of a a bad aside about feeling that we're devolving at a time when we need to most evolve could you set the the tone of where we are with the understanding of the new biology and epigenetics from an evolutionary point of view oh absolutely and it and it comes down to this right away it says um, uh, people have been told about this, but it's something that they don't really get into because it's such a big problem that it's like, oh, I can't deal with that. And I'm trying to deal with my own life here at this moment. And what is the problem? The problem is uh, uh, we're going extinct. We're destroying the environment. Uh, and the way uh, it, it, we're actually into what is called the sixth mass extinction of life on this planet. I know. Five times life was thriving, and then something happened 
and, and essentially got it wiped out, such as a comet or asteroid hitting the planet and upending the environment or massive Ice geological ages. activity, earthquakes, volcanoes, etc., upending life. And, and today we're in the sixth mass extinction. And what's most interesting about this is we're losing species of organisms a thousand times faster than background loss. There's always a loss of species, but it's a thousand times more species being mm. lost than average on a daily basis. And oh, the relevance gosh. is uh, we are indeed, uh, according to science, in the sixth mass extinction. But then mm-hmm. I say, well, what's the relevance of it? And the science says that the cause of our sixth mass extinction is human behavior. And it basically says, oh, my God. We are creating our own extinction by undermining the ecosystem, you know, pillaging the planet's resources, polluting the water and the air and all that other stuff. Talk about being on a suicide mission, right? Exactly. And then we go back to that Einstein quote that says you can't solve the problems with the same thinking. And then you say, yeah, and I look at it and say, well, the world seems to be falling apart. And I say, absolutely good idea. (laughs) And you say, what do you mean? I say, because if we continue life as it's been going, right. then the writing is on the wall, and this is not extinction in a thousand years. This is, I mean, NASA has come up with a scientific study, a massive study that says civil, industrial civilization is facing an irreversible collapse within the next couple of decades. But that means the world we're living in is already a doomsday thing. We're already doing it. And then you go back to Einstein and it says, well, you're not going to solve it the way we've been living. So what does it mean? You break down the structure so that you can build a new structure because you can't build on this foundation. So when you see it falling apart and it looks like we're devolving, uh, the answer is, well, yes, we are, because uh, this structure that we're operating from is the cause of the problem. And the, and the only way to get out of the problem is to have it crash. And so you can build a new one, not on the same foundation, because the foundation is where the problem comes from. So while people are looking at the world and reading the headlines, and it's crisis here and crisis there, and be afraid and fear and all this stuff, it's basically saying it's not working. (laughs) And the only way out of it is not to continue this, but to get outside (laughs) the system and create something different. So for me, what people should really understand is do not read these headlines with fear. I do it completely the opposite way around. I look at them and say, oh, great, another crisis. Not that I want to be in crisis, but if I don't see the crisis, that means nobody's going to make the change. Crisis precipitates evolution for a reason. You hit the wall. You cannot continue. You must make a change direction. Exactly. You must adapt. It forces biodiversity. Nature forces biodiversity, yeah. What looks like a a de-evolution where where everything seems falling apart, I say this is really good because, as I said, you keep it the same as Einstein said, and you're just going to perpetuate the problem. And so what we're seeing is a state of upheaval that looks like it's falling apart, which actually is falling apart, but not that means we're going to all go back in the cave, people. It just means we're going to step outside. That's not a bad thing. You're no, showing it's a good that thing. it's actually a very, very auspicious thing, right? Yeah, because if we didn't do it, it's worse. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Bruce. That was very succinct. I really appreciate it. We're just about out of time. I do want to share a couple of quotes that further buttresses what you're saying. One is uh, ancient Chinese, uh, well, couple. One that says uh, the greatest change starts at home. That's 
in reference to your backyard reference, which we needed to learn back in the 60s, frankly. Um, that's number one. They were hippies. Uh, another is, um, you know, uh, that uh, the only constant is change itself. We have the yeah. ancient Chinese to thank for that as well. Then... Uh, a quote that I have on my signature of my emails by Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Now I'll reach back a little further to Socrates, who said, the secret of change is to focus all of your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. And most people would not know that one, but they would know, Buckminster Fuller's phrase, you never change something by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Bruce Ancient Lipton, wisdom. I want to just thank you again. Ancient wisdom. And it's, it's like, uh, I remember a comedian that said, the older I get, the smarter my father becomes. <laughs> and, and <laughs> yeah. I think this is that applies here directly. There was a lot of it really does. This. And we just have to wake up. Thank you so much, Dr. Bruce Lipton. You're a gem. Thank you again. Keep up the great, brilliant work, and I hope to talk to you soon. We'll have you back. I so appreciate you, your audience, this opportunity, uh, because this is very exciting. We're living in exciting times, and and, um, I think if, if we can see that there's a positive spin, then it will change the whole direction of where we're going. God bless you. Thank you so much again. We're out of time. I will talk to you again soon. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. You can reach me at mjr at abetterworld.net. I love your thoughts, feelings, and comments. And visit our website, of course, www.abetterworld.tv, and share the fun with your friends and family. Bye-bye now.